I, I looked back with gratitude, frankly, uh, that nothing got wasted. I understand those who throw it all away, like my brother, but there's another way. There's another way to to keep what's worth keeping and let go of, of what we've poorly stuck onto the church over all these years. Welcome to the Wellspring Soul Care Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Gotthart, and I'm part of the Wellspring team. At Wellspring, we exist to serve the church. And how we serve the church is in particular by coming alongside leaders, pastors, and others. And we help them connect deeply with God and cultivate a vibrant and flourishing spiritual life, as well as paying attention to their emotional and relational health. Because we believe that healthy leaders will lead ultimately healthy churches, and healthy churches lead to flourishing communities and ultimately a reborn world in Jesus. And it's so wonderful today and so central to what we're about that we get to sit down with Philip Yancey. Philip Yancey is a beloved author of, by many, and I'm one of those, one of my favorites, and Philip has written so well and eloquently about topics like the church, who needs it, or prayer, what difference does it make, or what's so amazing about grace. But Philip's latest release is deeply personal. His memoir called Where the Light Fell describes his upbringing in not only a difficult home, but also some difficult and we would call even today toxic church environments. And yet, through it all, Philip still remains deeply in love with Jesus and still cares deeply about and is invested in the church. In a day and a time in which people are very confused and struggling with what to do with church and what to make of it, Philip's work and his life speak so well and so importantly. So, I trust you'll enjoy, as much as I did, this interview with Philip Yancey. some time uh, to have this conversation and um, yeah it's an honor to, to get to meet you like this so thank right. you. Right well I'm glad to be with you Richard. Yeah well, thank you thank you. Well we're talking of course about your your memoir uh, which is called Where the Light Fell. Of course this will be all on audio not video but I'm holding it here in my hand and I have devoured it and I really mean that. I, I started reading it and I really couldn't put it down. Um, and so beautifully written, and yet um, so much of it, honestly, just very heartbreaking. Um, a lot of pain, a lot of pain mm -hmm. in your journey. Um, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit of even just the title itself, Where the Light Fell. Um, sure. Yeah, could you tell us a little bit where that came from? It comes from a quote by St. Augustine, and he mm -hmm. said, I couldn't look at the sun directly, but I was able to look at the rays of the sun where the light fell. And that was my story as well. I grew up in, in a very church-saturated environment. In fact, in high school years, we actually lived on church property. We were in a mobile home, a trailer, small thing, eight feet wide, 48 feet long, about the size wow. of the monsters that drive down the interstate through Colorado where I live. <laughs> <laughs> 
Only this one was uh, uh, full time for my mother and my brother and wow. me. And mm. because we were on church property, living rent free, we were expected to be there every time the door opened and often when the door wasn't open, uh, wow. cutting the grass and preparing for the revival tents. And, and my mother was a Bible teacher. So even when we were young children, we went Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday and heard the same Bible stories over and over. So uh, I got a good saturation in the Bible. I got a good saturation in the in the whole revivalist mindset of the South back then, you know, going forward to receive Jesus multiple times, mm -hmm. being scared out of uh, out of my socks by threats of hell and punishment. And that was the background I grew up in. And I survived uh, some of the dysfunctions of family and church, mainly by creating a shell around myself very deliberately mm. to keep people from affecting me so mm. that I could become immune to the pressures around me. And it would have been, I'd say, almost impossible for God to reach me through traditional ways, through, let's say, a gospel tract or a Billy Graham sermon or something like that. I, I, could, I knew those inside and out. Mm -hmm. And after a while, I couldn't tell the, the real from the fake. And so I just kind of cast it all aside because I, I learned that the church had misrepresented some things to me and I wasn't interested in it. And it was really through places where the light fell. I spell out in the book, these happened mostly in college days and they were the, the beauties of nature. That was my respite when I was a kid growing up when things got too bad at home. I would just take a walk and, and take a camera, take a butterfly net and a, a hammer to pry out a log and look at the click beetles inside, things like that. Nature was a place that uh, seemed to work. It was orderly, it was beautiful, and it kind of restored my soul. Music was another one, and then romantic love. So those three things were where the light fell for me. And when I realized those good things in life, in the world, I realized that the picture of God I had received as a kid growing up in that Southern fundamentalist environment was, was not accurate. That God was not just this bully in the sky trying to punish us, trying to keep us from having fun. God was the author of every good thing. Every good gift comes from above, the mm. Bible says. And, mm -hmm. and I realized that for the first time, these were the good gifts. And I, I wanted to meet that God, but I was so confused by the false starts I had made over the years that I, I didn't know how. And, mm. and God met me uh, during those days in a way that changed my life. But the, the quote from St. Augustine says it well, I had been scorched by the sun, kind of the wrong picture of the sun, mm. the mm. image of God that I had for growing up in that environment. And uh, would have been hard to reach me directly, but indirectly through the good things of this world, I realized that I had a wrong picture of God and I wanted to know the true God. Well, it's a beautiful image, and and you talk uh, so eloquently about those three ways in which the light did fall, both in you know, creation and in romantic love, and um, and and I'm I wanted to go back a little bit though to because of your you you had a dramatic encounter you, you described so um, well in in the book in college uh, with God, this, even despite the hard shell you had layered yourself with. But I wanted to go back even before that to give a little more context because it seemed like though it was in college though, that you, um, encountered kind of the, the real story, so to speak, or the more full story of, 
that made a little uh, change the way you saw maybe your upbringing in terms of the the vow your mother made around you and your brother after your father passed away. Could you talk a little bit about that? Right. My father died when I was 13 months old, just barely a year old. So, of course, I have no conscious memories of him at all. And when you grow up like that, you, you really don't know what you're missing. You know, I never had a father, so I never went around thinking, oh, I wish I had a father. You know, it's just, <laughs> this was life. This is normal. And I didn't, however, know all the backstory of what was going on when he died. He was in the midst of a pandemic in the 1950s. That pandemic wasn't COVID-19, it was polio. Mm -hmm. Very feared disease because, oh, 50 to 70,000 people a year were contracting it in the United States, and mo most of them were children. It was, it was an infantile paralysis called at one point. Mm -hmm. My father was an exception. He was 23 years old. He had a dramatic conversion himself. He had been in the Navy and kind of desperate to get out, not happy at all, and wandered into to the Pacific Garden Mission in Chicago and mm. became a Christian and decided to become a minister, which he did, he was ordained. And then he and my mother both were planning to go to Africa as missionaries. That's when he got polio. And instead of heading off to the mission field, a group of people who had agreed to pray for them and support them got together and they became convinced that God would heal him. Why would God, air quotes, take a person like this with such potential for the kingdom mm -hmm. at that age, age 23? So they made a leap of faith. They had him removed from the iron lung where he'd been for two months, unable to move, unable even to breathe on his own. And he went to a clinic that didn't have those machines at all. In fact, he had to sign himself out against medical advice. Mm -hmm. So that was a dramatic leap of faith where these people who care for him and wanted the best for him took a prerogative they really didn't have the right to take. They decided who God would heal and who God would not. In this case, who God would heal. And they were wrong. I, I first found that out when I was 18 years old. I found a newspaper clipping from the Atlanta Constitution, the local newspaper. There was a picture taken during that period after he had been removed from the charity hospital with the iron lung and he seemed to be doing a little better he could sleep through the night he, my mother his wife could stay in the room with him there's a picture of her feeding him of course he's still unable to move except maybe he had regained a little movement in one toe and the story was of this dramatic leap of faith these people who truly believe god i looked at the at the newspaper date and it was nine days before he died and suddenly wow. things clicked into place because my mother had always held out for us this vow she made where she she surrendered my brother and me to God to replace them as missionaries in Africa. We didn't do that. And as teenagers, we started being teenagers and <laughs> not turning out in the kind of cookie cutter mold that she had planned for us. That kind of set her off in a bad direction, and there was a lot of conflict in the family, mostly between my brother and me. And in fact, that has gone on. They haven't seen each other in 51 years. So there was a huge rift in, the, in our little tiny family that developed. Yeah. And uh, in a lot of ways, we've been living the consequences of that vow that she made. Again, for good motives, what's wrong with being a missionary in Africa? But. It turned into much more than that. In, in my brother's case, it became almost a curse because when he didn't 
fulfill that vow, he paid for it severely. Yeah, and and you you go into some great detail about your both your own and your brother's journey, his more outward rebellion, you know, uh, away from uh, your mom and and from God. I mean, um, and then and then your own, which was more hidden, it seemed like at first. But I'm wondering, as you found out, you know, as you find out at, now, as at 18 years old, you knew your father had died from polio. But to find out that there, this vow that had been made because of this leap of faith, as you said, maybe an unwarranted leap of faith to take him off of this machine, how does that affect your the way you see your your own narrative at that point? How did what what happens inside of you? When I was a child, I I thought I was special. I thought I was chosen. I that sounded mm. pretty good. That I had been presented to God to fulfill this. Mm -hmm this worthy ambition. But the same church that uh, supported that vision also had some cracks in it. And mm -hmm. when I was teenage years, especially around the issue of racism, I realized mm -hmm. that they had, they were wrong about some things, just flat out wrong. And I learned early on that people who claim to speak from, for God aren't always speaking for God. Hmm. And that was certainly true of the people surrounding my father. They cared for him. They were well-meaning, well-intentioned, but they were wrong. God wasn't going to heal him, and he died. So yeah. what we believe has strong consequences, sometimes tragic, fatal consequences in my father's case. And it made me suspicious of the church in general. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of your listeners are church leaders, and we just need to be really careful because things have that leaders say from the pulpit that may sound right but oh. if you don't do them in the right way and if you if you don't qualify them correctly you can really set people off i was on a, a podcast with a person you may know kate bowler uh -huh. who wrote a book called everything happens for a reason and other lies that i've loved <laughs> uh -huh. and and she the whole book is about uh people who would try to give her advice to make her feel better when she found out that she had stage four colon cancer and may mm. not have long to live. And these people are giving her these little platitudes about God's trying to teach you something, everything works together for good. And you take a little phrase like that and just dangle it in front of somebody, uh, even something in my father's case. Well, of course, uh, it, it would be a great thing for him to be healed dramatically of polio and taken out of the siren lung so that he could go to to be Africa as a missionary. But that's not a prerogative that we really have. Uh -huh. And in fact, there were many adults in those days, if he had been able to stay in that iron lung and, and had some therapy at the same time, there's a good chance that he could have regained semi-normal life. Maybe he would walk with a limp or have braces or something. But many people did recover and they chose against that and decided God's going to act this way. And they were absolutely sure and they were absolutely wrong. Mm. That's, a, that's a tragic thing. And we, yeah, we do see that in so many ways, as you said, that even well-meaning, well-intended people that was it. And it's, it seems like a dangerous thing to say, well, it, it seems to me that God would want to do this or that. And right. To, exactly. to, and that's we get ourselves in some trouble. Uh, and not ourselves, not only ourselves, but affect a lot of other people, especially if we're in a place of influence or leadership. Um, 
You know, it's you, very tempting, yeah. uh, Richard. I don't know if you've been listening to any of these CT podcasts that are on the Mars Hill yes. situation, Mark Driscoll's church. Yeah, and it's very tempting. They mentioned not just Mark; he, he's mm-hmm. kind of a jumping-off point, but many people who get acclaim and are standing in the pulpit, and people are looking up to them. And it's it's easy, it's easy to become a narcissist and to make mm-hmm. pronouncements. And people are out there taking you seriously, writing down every word you say. And, and it, it's a holy obligation that we need to attend to as church leaders. Absolutely. It's uh, a friend of mine, uh, Chuck DeGroat, actually, who's been on this podcast, talks about, he said, you know, it does take a, a I don't know, a certain kind of person to stand up in front of others and, and to say, yeah, this is what God wants you to do. Um, right. You know, that's a, that's a, it ought to scare us a bit to and humble us to be making those kinds of statements um, to others. Absolutely. I wanted to talk to you through the lens of, in some ways, as a survivor, if you will, hmm. of, of a difficult, difficult to say the least, uh, a fairly extreme um, experience of the church. Um, you, I don't, you know, lots of labels we throw around. I don't know if you would call it fundamentalist or you talk about elements of racism and, um, and yet I, I, as I read in your book and, and in other books you've written, there's, there's a graciousness that you have even towards things that, that you do that were unquestionably hurtful, painful, even misrepresented God to you and others. And yet and yet, first of all, I guess I would just say it's it's stunning that you are still part of the church, <laughs> be, especially in this time of, you know, deconstruction is kind of the term of the day. And and I understand it in many ways. Um, but what what would you say kept you? What kept you has kept you part of the church, despite all you've experienced and even beyond your childhood and upbringing, even you have a front row seat, I think, through your work and writing and I'm sure contact with others to, I'm sure some of the best, but also some of the worst things that yeah. uh, happen in the church. Yes, and I and that's why I wrote this book. I've been waiting a long time to write it. And hmm. I, I feel uniquely uh, bestowed. <laughs> hmm. I, I did get some of the worst that the church has to offer and some of the best. You're, you're absolutely right. And Evangelicalism especially is going through a, a turmoil period right now. It, it seems like it's just spinning off in all directions and, and there's mm-hmm. nothing holding it together and we don't know what it's going to look like. Certainly the it's become much more politically divided than any time in my lifetime. The church I grew up in wasn't that much into politics. They were mostly mm. concerned about being different, being separate, being a little enclave and Hmm. Um, not engaging that much in the world around them. That's changed a lot. And the church in media is primarily viewed through this political lens, which is a very sad thing, I think. Yes. Hmm. But um, when I talk to people, there there are as many as 25 to 30 million ex-evangelicals. You've probably heard that phrase. Mm -hmm. These are people who were raised in an environment somewhat affected by evangelicalism, and that can be mainline churches as well. 
people who went to Young Life, people who went to summer camps, maybe even a Christian college or a place like Wheaton College um, or Westmont, Elter Way. Sure. And, and, and yet they turned away from it. And they turned away for a variety of reasons. Some would be attitudes in, in people in the church, say against science, against mm -hmm. uh, gay people, mm -hmm. against uh, certain political issues that, that are important. And they just didn't experience that grace. They didn't experience the sense of community and trustworthiness. I think that's, when I talk to mm. people in a younger generation, so I wrote this book because I wanted to capture just the inside out environment of evangelical slash fundamentalism. And mm. I, I admit mine was a more extreme version that most people go through. It, it had Southern racism and anger and hostility and all that mixed in with it, right. which, which isn't true across the board. But I wanted to capture that culture because as I looked back on it, uh, there, there were also great gifts that I learned. Bible knowledge, discipline, a true sense of community. When somebody's house burned down, you, it's a good thing to belong to a church. They rally around, you know, they find you mm. furniture, they help rebuild your houses. And, and in some ways the church was being the church, but it's easy to get distracted. It's easy to get diverted from our calling. And the way I, I got detoured by things like the legalism and the weird theology, maybe it would be politics now. It's easy to, to get put on the wrong path and racism was one of the things that really got my attention. And when I realized the church had was wrong, just completely wrong, the Southern racist church, it, it was a true crisis of faith for me. And once again, that's a caution. We need to be careful to what we hold up as ultimates. Hmm. I, I know so many pastors and, and churches who are going through divisions over COVID-19 for, of all things, you know, vaccines and masking. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it just seems strange. I think we're 20, 30 years from now, we're going to look back on that and say, that was crazy to chase people away from the church because of an issue like that. You know, we, right. we can disagree. We can we can still uh, have respect for each other and, and, and not divide churches over an issue like that. Um, so yeah. when I became a journalist, I, I kind of had my... Uh, my guns drawn and I thought this is back when Carl Woodard and uh, Bob Woodard mm -hmm. and Carl Bernstein were the heroes mm -hmm. of journalists. And I thought, man, that'd be great. I should find some some Christian charlatans. I should find these corrupt take down leader leaders. <laughs> yeah, take them down. And I did a few articles, just very few like that and, and found out I didn't like that at all because you have to be around people like that. And I, mm. I didn't want to be around people like that. I didn't want to be like that. And so I looked for people who I wanted to emulate, I wanted to learn from. And I've been very blessed because uh, I spent 10 years with a, with a great man, Dr. Paul Brand, writing books about his story. Uh -huh. And in the book Soul Survivor, I talk about other people. I've been able to uh -huh. profile and get to know and interview people like Frederick Buechner and Annie Dillard and Henry Nowen and, and Robert Coles, others. I, for people who have been who have come out of a unhealthy situation like that, I would say that's probably a, a track I would recommend to find people that you want to be like. Mm. 
David Brooks in his book, The Road to Character, talks about two different kinds of virtues. They're the resume virtues, the kinds you put in your resume to impress people on LinkedIn. You know, what school <laughs> you went to, what kind of uh, grades you got, what kind of jobs you've had, how smart you are, what kind of <laughs> private clubs you belong to, you know, th those kind of things. Um, and then there are eulogy virtues. And those are the mm. virtues they talk about at your funeral. Mm. And it's a funny thing because we spend our lives you know, making sure we, we're the first person on the block to own a Tesla and make sure we got this kind of stock option before it took off. I was one of the original people on Facebook. You know, these are the things we talk about or our sports teams winning. Nobody talks about that at, at funerals. They don't say, he lived when the Atlanta Braves won the World Series. You know? <laughs> they say he was generous, he was kind, she was compassionate, she loved others, she cared for her family. And that's, that's hard to remember when you're a young person trying to make a, an identity for yourself, but it really is true. If you spend your life chasing the resume virtues, some of the most ornery, least desirable people I know were very successful at doing that. They mm -hmm. accumulated a lot, but they lost their soul in the process. And Jesus was pretty clear about that. You, d yeah. you don't gain your life by acquiring more and more. You gain it by giving it away in service to others. And I've been privileged as a journalist to profile people who live that out and convince me of its truth. That's so powerful. I love that term, eulogy virtues versus a resume virtue. I love that. Um, and you've, you've mentioned the, some, some wonderful names of, of folks that have exhibited, you know, uh, wonderful examples of those kinds of virtues of uh, uh, Henry Now and uh, Frederick Beekner. We, we've recently on our podcast, we talked to Lynn Collier, who wrote about Eugene Peterson or Gary yes. Moon, who talked about Dallas Willard. And, you know, and one of the things I've been thinking about lately, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on is, you know, we've, we've lost some of those, I would call them character giants in recent mm -hmm. years, you know, from mm -hmm. Eugene to Dallas to, uh, you know, others as well. When you look around at the landscape these days, and I'm talking more even within the church world, uh, followers of Jesus, where are you seeing evidence of, or, you know, hope for, I suppose, some of those kinds of the development of, um, not not platforms and brands, not the size of your church or the how you know how slick or how many whatever followers you have, but but the depth of character and uh, virtue. Where where are you seeing that? It is out there. Uh, there aren't people with giant names like a Billy Graham was for many years, mm -hmm. but certainly there are pastors with unique approaches. When, when my book was first launched, the publisher got me together with John Mark Comer. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are people like that, or Andy Stanley, who would have a different approach. Andy is, is trying to reach the audience after Saturday Night Live. Now, that's a tough crowd. <laughs> <laughs> They've watched Saturday Night Live for an hour, they're revved up, and then some preacher comes on? I mean, really. So I give Andy yeah. a lot of credit. Right. And of course, he's got a, a whole church network as well. But beyond that, there are people behind the scenes. I think of mm -hmm. Gary Haugen, mm -hmm. Harvard grad who had been through the turmoil in South Africa when it, it changed from an apartheid state and then he went to Rwanda mm -hmm. on behalf of the UN and documented the terrors going on there during the genocide. 
And then he formed this organization, the International Justice Mission, which uh, works with sexual slavery, sexual trafficking, and just does a wonderful job with scores and scores of, of bright young lawyers who are devoting themselves going around the world and and fighting evil mm-hmm. and uh, another person would be brian stevenson mm-hmm. a fine african-american who is from the north and knew nothing about the south but he ended up in alabama and first started walk, uh, working with people who were unjustly imprisoned either uh, innocent and, and imprisoned mm-hmm. or with some sentence that was completely out of proportion to the crime they had committed. And he started this Equal Justice Initiative and then various monuments to the Civil Rights Movement. And people like that, motivated by their faith, are really making a difference. Mm -hmm. And in addition, there are, any Christian college or university that I've been to have these people tucked away that don't get a lot of attention, aren't in the limelight, but they truly are dedicated committed people who work in different fields like science or history or chemistry even Mm -hmm. and um, there are people who are motivated by their faith and have found a way to put together things that are difficult for most of us to put together faith and science and politics you know these things there there are people out there who can help you do that and and so I've been privileged as a journalist just to get to know some of those people and profile them in some cases and they are there hmm. but the media of course likes the juice they like the uh, the people who fall from grace who make a big splash falling down on their face sure and it, it, it's unfortunate yeah well as someone who is has seen all kinds of folks and and particularly in the context of ministry pastors and Christian leaders um, what, what have you observed over the years, um, especially as our audience is, is one that there's a lot of pastors and Christian leaders listening, um, what have you seen are the um, ways that, that lead to people cultivating those kinds of um, eulogy virtues? Um, because like you said, the, what the, the rewards often these days, at least outwardly, seem to be often about, you know, how big can your church or organization get? How many, how um, v- very external kinds of things that we measure. And yet, as you say, you know, Jesus is after the cultivation of an inner life and a life with him. What, what do you, what have you seen helps people to cultivate those things when in the face of all the temptation to just focus on the externals? Hmm. It's very difficult now, and I think social media has a, has a lot to do with that. Um, I traded in my flip phone just about two months ago. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to be the last person in America without a smartphone <laughs> because I, I looked around me and these people would be sitting at Starbucks, you know, a gang of five people, and they're all on their own individual phones, and they may be texting the people at the same table, but they're not right. looking at them, they're not talking to them. and just chained to mechanical devices. So mm-hmm. if you're if you're clicking on uh, Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat and Facebook every five minutes, uh, that is not a way to develop eulogy virtues. Actually, mm. that'll take you away because you, yeah. you need slowness, you need quiet, you need the classic spiritual disciplines. There's a good mm. reason for 
uh, what we've learned about spiritual disciplines over the centuries. And our, our culture is pulling in exactly the other direction. It, it wants us to go shallow, not deep. And it wants mm -hmm. us to, to be in a constant state of frenzy about, should I buy this? Am I behind the times? Is, I, I, I don't have the latest whatever, you know, tennis shoes right. or vehicle. Um, right. And some people, uh, I've read wonderful books about the Sabbath and, and feel guilty because I don't really practice that to the degree that I should. But, uh, you know, some of those basic ways to disengage from the cultural mayhem, I think, are, are things that we really need to concentrate on. And mm. church can cultivate that. Mm. What often happens is that church becomes uh, just slightly behind the rest of culture. So a new a new technology comes up and churches immediately grab it and and try to take it over and do as well as the rest of culture and and, and i think it's it's okay to be a little slower mm -hmm. and to make sure we want to follow that route Going back to the church, if we could for a moment, and you talked about talk about pastors and leaders. You know, uh, you obviously are not. I assume you found different expressions of church than the kind you grew up in. Once right. it would be more legalistic, and um, obviously some of the other you know judgmental qualities. One, I guess, uh, yeah. How did you? find your what helped you find your way to different uh, different expressions of church and what what do you have you looked for if you will in in church communities i could write a whole book on churches i've attended over the years maybe i should <laughs> <laughs> I, I grew up in in the very narrow-minded and narrow fundamentalist churches in the south and got away from that and then as an adult, we moved to Wheaton, Illinois initially. And I went to some of the classic churches in Wheaton. There were a lot of churches. It's a, you know, there are a lot of Christian organizations there. So a lot of mm -hmm. talent. And, and I got, this was the early 1970s and I was still affected by the 60s. So I got kind of bored by the churches with organs and robes and things like that. So sure. we, started, we started going to a church called Circle Church in downtown Chicago. It was a long drive. David Maines was the mm -hmm. pastor. It met in the union hall of the Teamsters Union. And that was pretty cool. You know, nothing sacred about that building. Right. <laughs> and they they had a, a an Asian pastor, an African-American pastor, and the David Maines was the white Anglo pastor. And they tried everything. They did things you never knew from one week to another what was going to happen there. Then we started going to a house church in Wheaton hmm. with just about, oh, maybe 12, 14 people. Uh, boy, we threw everything out the window. So in, instead of bread and wine for communion, we had Cokes and potato chips. <laughs> and, uh, you know, this is, it was the 60s, which sure. the church experienced a few years later. And then we found a church in downtown Chicago where we stayed for about 13 years, 15 years. LaSalle Street Church, which was right smack in between the richest zip code in Chicago, the Gold Coast, and the poorest zip code in Chicago, which was a, a housing development called Cabrini Green. Mm. And it did a wonderful job of bringing those two together. And I, mm. I've had a hard time with 
with exclusive churches ever since, churches that don't include people who are of different races, different ages, and just different cultural backgrounds. Mm -hmm. Because it was great. You never knew what would happen there as well. You could have uh, a gospel choir or somebody's uh, jazz violin uh, piece mm -hmm. that they came up with. Um, you could have somebody acting out a sermon instead of preaching a sermon. But there were... There were four or five rows of elderly senior citizens. They ran a senior citizens program, which my wife was the director of. Oh, wow. And so the people thought, this is my church. They fix breakfast for me. They take me to the doctor. So I'm going to worship there. And I'm sure for some of these elderly black women, this is the most boring church they've ever been to. <laughs> because, uh, you know, I, I was at some of the African-American churches and they rocked. And most white churches were, were pretty bland by contrast. Sure, sure. But... Um, that church combined the the Bible and and the social justice commands all through the Bible, through the prophets, and th through what Jesus said, and really tried to put them into into motion. So when anybody identified a need around like unwanted pregnancies or homelessness or whatever need came up, the pastor would say, "Who wants to start a ministry to meet this need?" And and one ministry after another would just spring up spontaneously and that became a great place because it wasn't it wasn't just about this is what you should believe it was mm. this is how your life should be changed should yeah. be different be challenged by the gospel wow. and I've, I've never found a place quite like that we later moved to Colorado and it's it's hard to find where we live now it's very hard to find a diverse church experience people are are um it's, it's not an urban environment. An urban environment is very different. And I miss that sure. part of it. And and just I, I made the comment the other day that I feel very uncomfortable when I get into when I walk into a church and everybody is kind of like me. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think yeah. that's what the church should be. The church should be a place where, as Paul said, uh, slaves and free Greeks mm. and Gentiles and women and men are all together because there aren't many places in society where that happens. Yeah, it's interesting. I have a friend that uh, had planted in Little Rock, Arkansas a number of years ago, an intentionally uh, multi-ethnic church uh, called Mosaic. And he talked about that, you know, this church growth principle that somehow took root in the 80s. And it was, hmm. uh, was this um, homogenous unit principle. This idea right. of, you know, get a bunch of people that are a lot alike and then they're going to want to have more people like them around and they'll invite their friends. And and yet, like you said, the gospel is is seems to really stand that on its head, doesn't it? That uh, yeah. the, the miracle of the church in so many ways seems to be this such a diversity and yet and yet unity. And it seems like we've lost a lot of that. We really have. There was a large church here in, in the Denver area where a new pastor came in. And he decided uh, that he would divide up his church. So he wanted singles over here, young marriage there, senior citizens over there. And I mean, it kind of makes sense in the church growth principle, but I think that's the beauty of the church. I, I remember one time I was sitting in a pew and right next to me was this senior citizen who was connected to oxygen. So you could hear that huffing and puffing and whistling mm. of the machine. And just on the other side was a, a a new mother with a newborn and she's nursing and he was huffing and puffing too <laughs> and it was just great to be sandwiched in between the end of life and the beginning of life wow. and there aren't many places where you can get that kind of 
diversity. I wasn't racial diversity, but just age diversity. But yeah. church should be a place where hmm. where you are put up against, or not against, together with people at all stages of life, in all stages of socioeconomic life. That's the challenge of the church, and it should be one of its yeah. great gifts to society. It really should. And, and uh, you know, one of the areas of, that we seem to be uh, losing even as well, even if you will, diversity, um, all the political division these days and animosity, it seems like the, like you said, the, the fallout around how COVID and people's reaction to that has led to seems like so much division within the church itself. And in my view, it seems like a healthy church expression would have people all along uh, holding various views, different divergent views around political thoughts. And yet it seems like often people are, if they go to a church and they hear someone or something that doesn't line up, then they're, I'm out of here. And um, what, what's a way forward, do you think, out of the that kind of mess that we seem to be in? <laughs> there are various ways of exposing people. I remember attending uh, Willow Creek Church, very large mega church in Chicago mm -hmm. that's, that was in the news a lot the last few years. <laughs> yeah. And um, they gathered together people from different religions, a Hindu, mm. a priest, a Muslim imam, a, a, a Buddhist person, and their own pastor, and just went through basic questions. If, if somebody knows they've done something wrong, how does your religion t teach them to deal with it? What is your understanding of God? What is your understanding of the afterlife? Just these very, very basic questions. And up on a platform, each one answered. And, and actually, most people went out of there feeling, you know, I understand different points of view, but the Christian point of view, the pastor, he, he made sense. I, I kind of like what he said, you know. Mm. And I, I think uh, that kind of environment where with skilled leadership, with a moderator who can draw people out and, and keep it from being a, a contest. Um, oh. The church should be sponsoring that instead of just one person talking from on high. This is what you should believe. Yeah. I know a lot of pastors are just caught in the middle of this pandemic. And it's it seems so sad to me because. Second Corinthians one calls God the, the, the God of all comfort, the father oh. of compassion. And if there was ever a time our, our world, the entire world needed that message of comfort and compassion and could get it from the church, it would be in a global pandemic when everybody was affected at some level or another. And instead, we just added to the chaos and we added to the division and, and hostility. I think it's it doesn't speak well for the church with a missed opportunity like that. Oh, I so agree. I, I was pastoring uh, last year. Uh, in Santa Cruz, and I I remember as the as the beginning of the pandemic was unfolding, and at least the possibility of what this might be in in some dire predictions. As much as that was daunting, there was a part of it that felt like, well, this may be a moment. I thought of even the the early church, and you know, um, when the plague came, right, and the that the church stayed and 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 cared for people, and I thought this could be a moment for the church to shine. Yes. and display the love of Jesus and it and I know I'm sure there are wonderful examples of that but it just seems like it hasn't overall that isn't the message our culture is receiving from the church which is yeah. so sad yeah 
Yes, we do have an opportunity. And, and I know some churches who went out of their way to celebrate and honor first responders and mm. healthcare workers and that kind of thing is so healthy. Uh, when we applaud and reward people in our society who may not be part of our churches, but are doing things that help society at large, let's, let's give them a hand and give them some honor that uh, recognizes the sacrifices they have to make on a daily basis. I wanted to come back a little bit. So you're I, I, one of the things you, you write in, in, I think it was towards the end of, um, of where the light fell, you talked about that really in some ways your memoir is sort of a prequel, if you will, to all the other things you've written. In other words, the questions that you kind of emerged out of your childhood and adolescence with uh, in some ways formed the basis for a lot of what you ended up writing later. Is that is that an accurate way of describing that? It is, and I'm kind of glad that I did it in that order <laughs> when I think about it, Richard, because um, in a sense, I'm, I'm explaining why I believe the things mm. that I've written about for 40 years, because mm. piece by piece, I've been picking up the essentials of faith. Who is Jesus? What is grace? Why is church important? What about the mm. problems in the Old Testament? And, and looking at them, kind of taking them apart, first examining what I was taught when I grew up and what's worth keeping and what should I discard. Mm -hmm. That's the process that I've gone through as a writer. Mm -hmm. And only now have I told the back, my own backstory that explains why, why I needed to do that, why that was important for me. Mm -hmm. I think if I had started out early on, this is my story, let me tell you about my story growing up, then as I wrote other books that are idea-driven books, people would say, oh, well, now I understand why he wrote that. It's because he's trying to get this childhood worked out of him or whatever. You know, they would psychologize what I was saying. Mm. And mm. and instead, uh, so often I have this uh, this reaction where I'm talking to somebody, maybe sitting next to me on an airplane or in a lounge somewhere, or a doctor's office. You know, what do you do? I'm a writer. Oh, really? What kind of books do you write? Well, uh, I'll explain them. And they'll say, oh, well, I used to go to church, but uh, I just can't do it anymore. Oh, why not? And they'll tell me this story, and and I'll just lean back and say, oh, it's it's a lot worse than that. Let me tell you my story. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And, and they say, wait a minute, I thought you said you were a Christian writer. I said, well, I am. I am, but I, I learned there's some things worth keeping. And, and hmm. we all go through a process, like I've gone through publicly, of, deciding what to keep and what what to discard, but it would be a terrible trade to cut off a relationship with the, the God of the universe because oh. of the way a church appended me 20 years ago, 40 years ago or whatever. Oh. And uh, I truly believe that. And I, I do look back with, with gratitude for some of the good things that the church instilled in me and gave me. I survived. I my brother did not. I tell that story. My brother uh -huh. is an atheist to this day and was wounded. And a lot of people were wounded fatally by the church. And the sad thing is they, they judged God by what they saw in the church. And I did too growing up. So uh -huh. I thought God was a racist and an angry, punishing uh, bully in the sky somewhere. And it took me a long time to overcome that. But when I did, when I discovered a God of goodness and grace and love and mercy, uh, that was worth hanging in there. <laughs> mm. It took me a while to find it and I went through a lot. But I, 
I hope the book, Where the Light Fell, is a message of hope because there are people, a lot of people who have been wounded by the church, wounded by their own families. And I understand that. I try to bend over backwards in my writing to to represent that point of view. I understand the skeptics. I understand those who throw it all away. Hmm. But I, I do say, take another look. Are you sure you want to sacrifice all of that? Because there are other ways to handle the wounds. I look back at my own wounds and I, I after I wrote this memoir, and again, I waited till I'm over 70 years old, I, I looked back with gratitude, frankly, uh, that nothing got wasted. I understand those who throw it all away, like my brother, but there's another way. There's another way oh. to to keep what's worth keeping and let go of, of what we've poorly stuck onto the church over oh. all these years. So helpful. Can can I, I just two more questions? One, if I can ask, what because there seems like there's there's two paths. One can lead to bitterness, can lead to resentment, can lead to you know disillusionment. What has kept you from giving in to those things? Giving in to to just being bitter and and, and unwilling to forgive, whether it's your your mother or the church or even God, if you will, um, what what's what's helped you or kept you from from giving in to those things? Well, I wrote a book called "The Jesus I Never Knew," mm-hmm. and my faith is very Christocentric. It, apart mm-hmm. from Jesus, I certainly wouldn't believe. Mm-hmm. Apart from Jesus, none of us would be a Christian. <laughs> there wouldn't be a Christ. <laughs> but uh, the more I got to know Jesus and kind of peeled away that Sunday school patina around him, um, he was a very attractive character. He was tough. He was funny. He was brilliant, elusive, hard to pin down, but compassionate. I, I just love the combination. And and in Jesus, I believe we have a picture of what God is like, truly like, and what we mm. should be like. Mm. And mm. so that that helped a lot. And I I did have to carve away some of that crusty stuff that the church had surrounded this Jesus with. But if you, it's there in the Gospels. Just read the story of Jesus over and over. And mm. he just, he, he delights. He, he challenges. And mm. I've been um, fortunate, very providentially, I guess I should say, blessed to have been surrounded by people who are healthy in their faith. So my first job was working for Campus Life magazine and some of the early editors there, then at Christianity Today and people at Wheaton showed me a healthy, a healthy faith. And when you really see it, this is another challenge to leaders. It only takes one person to convince you there's something true here, there's something worth pursuing. For me, that was Dr. Paul Brand. And we ended up writing three books together. And I saw, I saw that in every way he was improved and made larger by his faith. Um, he, he loved the world, he loved the natural world, he knew the name of every insect, bird, tree, <laughs> mm. and, and just uh, was fully alive even as he spent a life of great sacrifice among people with leprosy in India, not, not the nicest environment. Mm. And, and the kind of people I've tracked down as a journalist, Millard Fuller, this arrogant millionaire whose marriage fell apart and then he he went to uh, 
Koinonia Farms in Georgia and was put on a different path and, and founded Habitat for Humanity. Mm-hmm. Much happier, more fulfilled as a human being building houses for people who have no houses than mm-hmm. he ever was with a big swimming pool and tennis courts in his backyard in Alabama. And mm-hmm. again and again, I've just seen back to that uh, eulogy virtues versus resume virtues. You know, the resume mm-hmm. virtues feel good on a temporary basis, but you lose them after a time. And and we who follow Jesus believe what he said, that we're we're actually building up a bank account that will that will result in rewards someday. And the rewards are actually being worked out in us right now. We find our lives by losing them. We don't lose our life by losing them. We find our lives. And when I look at people like Dr. Brand, Millard Fuller, people I mentioned earlier, Brian Stevenson, Gary Haugen, these guys could do anything in the world. They're that skilled, they're that bright, and yet they choose to live in service to others, and they're the ones who reap the rewards as mm. well as what what they do for the rest of us. Mm. Wow, that's beautiful. Thank you. Okay, I have one last question for you, and that is because you are such a, a, a great question asker, and I, fa- I think it's fascinating even that many of your book titles are themselves questions, from Church, Why Bother, to... You know, that um, in some ways, Jesus I never knew is less of a question, but even, you know, where is God when it hurts and so on. So I have a question for you is what is a question or a kind of question that um, you don't get asked, but would um, but would be a good question to ask you, if that makes any sense? Because you probably get a lot of in these in this season, you get asked a lot of different questions by a lot of different people. But maybe what's one that you, maybe you wish someone would ask you? Hmm. You, when I wrote this book, I had no idea how my life fitted together. I hmm. felt like I was just putting together a jigsaw puzzle. And I, I didn't know what it was going to look like. And, and so in the process, I've answered some of those questions that I've never asked before hmm. about myself. And the one that strikes me most is why I keep writing about the same things, hmm. suffering and grace. And hmm. I think if you had asked me that before I wrote this book, I would say, I don't know, I just keep being haunted by them, you know. <laughs> but but now that I put together my story, it's pretty obvious that I write about suffering because I, I did endure a lot. Mm-hmm. Everybody has a different kind of pain, and I describe some of mine. And then uh, grace because... I didn't endure a lot of that. I didn't see, I didn't really experience grace growing up in the churches that that I attended then. And when you get your first gulp of grace, it changes everything. Uh, John Newton wrote that great song, Amazing Grace, and I understand it truly is, it truly is amazing. And so I, the, uh, the unasked question of my life was, why do you keep writing about the same things? And the answer is this book, <laughs> Where the Light <laughs> Fell. It explained it not only uh, to the readers, but to me, uh, mm. questions I wouldn't have had an answer to before then. Wow. Well, thank you. That's wonderful to hear. And and I, again, could not recommend any more highly um, your memoir, as well as really everything you've written. I It's uh, sitting on my shelf over here, I think, virtually all, all of your books. And they've been a gift to me and obviously countless, countless others. And... And I just thank you. Thank you for uh, letting us in uh, into 
your life in ways that are both personal, I'm sure in many ways revisiting and reliving some of those things had to have been very painful, but also uh, I hope healing and um, and were, have been a gift to, to me and so many others. So just thank you. Thank you for your writing. Thank you for your your words uh, that that are both helpful and healing and a gift. So mm-hmm. thank you. Well, you guys are the ones on the front lines. Uh, you've been in the pastor before. And mm-hmm. if I can help make your job a little easier, um, it's one thing for me to sit in my office and dream inside my head, but you're you're the ones actually out there in the hospitals and mm. uh, dealing with people whose marriages are falling apart and real life. And uh, I, if something I do in my own introverted, <laughs> mm. isolated way can help you do that, that's, re- that's really what the body of Christ is all about. We have different uh. gifts and we're trying to represent what God is really like because a lot of people don't know or have been misinformed. Mm. Thank you. Again, Thank you so much, Philip, and thank you for giving us this time. And we're uh, we're very appreciative. Great talking with you, Richard. Thank you for joining us for today's conversation. If you found it helpful, feel free to share this podcast with others and subscribe to it on iTunes or Spotify, wherever you found us, and give us a rating. We'd really appreciate that as well. Again, if we can serve you as part of Wellspring, we are here to serve the church, both its leaders and people in whatever ways we can. So go to wellspringca.org to see what resources we have to offer and how you can be served by them. Go to our Facebook page, just search Wellspring on Facebook and you'll see lots of resources there as well. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, grace and peace.